You mustn't think I have a closed mind. I have absolutely no objection to your studying telepathy or parapsychology to your heart's content. Oh, so that's how we ended up with the MBTI. Thanks, Freud, for giving Jung the idea to explore stuff that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Psychology Meets Film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we've got a bit of a doozy. We're going to go a little down psychology memory lane and talk about the history of psychology in uh, the first of a two-part series of movies that follow events in psychology yep uh, this week and uh the next episode are going to be two very history of psych centric movies and topics so what are we talking about today a dangerous method a dangerous method came out in 2011 directed by david cronenberg in his a uh, set of films that are set apart from his body horror uh, group of films. So just be aware that it this is the heady, intellectual, thriller-ish vibe David Cronenberg. The story was uh, created or written by Christopher Hampton, which is a stage play. Uh, um, called The Talking Cure, but that was based on a book in 1993, Nonfiction, A Most Dangerous Method, by John Kerr. So John Kerr wrote this book in 93. About 10 years later, Christopher Hampton wrote the stage play about the book. book was nonfiction, by the way. The Talking Cure and A Dangerous Method are both fictionalized stories based on true events, at least that were in the public eye. Uh, so A Dangerous Method is, is essentially a stage play on film that you see quite a bit, like Fences or Rent, that kind of thing, where it's very character-driven rather than setting-driven, we'll say. I mean, we're in a set, certain setting, but, you know, it's character-driven, that kind of thing. So who's in this movie? All the ones you love. The I believe the third or so 
I mean, maybe the second time out of like four different times that Vigo Mortensen collaborated has collaborated here with David Cronenberg. So talking, you know, history of violence, that kind of thing. So he plays Freud. Vigo plays Freud. The main character, though, is Jung, Carl Gustav Jung. He is played by Michael Fassbender using a, his British accent as opposed to any affectation that he could give to his German uh, roots because he is of German ancestry and he speaks German fluently, but he gives, he, he just basically speaks in a more uh, Victorian, uh, post-Victorian post industrial era um, high British accent, I guess. And then Kira Knightley plays the real Sabina Spielrein, uh, a, a Russian Jew, and there is a, an anti-Semitism theme in this movie. Probably won't get to it, but there is a discussion about how Jews and and um, non-Jews, Aryans as they're referred to, um, have a have a bit of a, a, a clash, have a bit of cultural clash going on. So Spielrein Sabina is played by Kira Knightley, and this is a quick. One hour and 30 minute movie. Uh, very intellectual. You got to follow along. Otherwise, you will miss some things. Not everything, but you will miss some things. And if you are a psychology nerd like me, this is one of the movies that maybe you don't come back to, but you definitely see once and maybe discuss in your classes clips of it. It is not great, but it's not bad either. I I would probably give it a six or seven out of ten, and and really that's driven by the performances going just full on into these characters, into these real people. So not good, not bad. And so let's talk the history of psychology. My guest host today is Dr. Sheila Thomas. Sheila is a psychologist and researcher specializing in language disorders. She has taught psychology in the UK for the past 25 years and is currently teaching A-level, which is AP for us North Americaners, and the International Baccalaureate, which I think is a little bit more uh, well-known, online from her home in Portugal. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's lovely to have the opportunity to uh, discuss one of my favorite films. Favorite films. I'm I'm really excited for this then. I'm and I'm happy to have you on because um we get an international flavor today. I love it. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um so before we jump into discussing the movie as I do with all of my guests, I like to get a sense of uh the teaching of psychology in your pedagogy. So what are your thoughts on film in general and then how do you approach films in your teaching of psychology? 
that's an interesting question. So I personally use film a lot in my teaching. Excellent. Um, in fact, my um, international baccalaureate and A-level students were so enthused by the films that we watched in class. Um, they actually asked if we could set up a, f- a psychology film club oh, um, awesome. as, a, as a kind of um, enrichment activity. So in addition to normal lessons um, mm-hmm. and during that time, we watched um, films that dealt with a, a wider range of psychological issues mm-hmm. uh, than those that were just on the syllabus, um, which was, oh, was nice. wonderful for yeah. extending people's um, knowledge and experience. Um, and I actually think that images are very powerful aids to remembering things so mm-hmm. that while you might not remember all the notes that uh, you make from a lecture or um, the you know everything that you read in a book right you will remember a really powerful image or yeah. a moment in a film when you felt really aroused and connected to the events or the characters and you actually had total focus in that moment um so i think it's invaluable actually in in the teaching process Awesome. That's a great answer. It's probably going to end up in uh, uh, a manuscript or a book I end up writing about all of this kind of stuff. (laughs) So stay tuned for that. So I love the film club idea. We have a psych social club at my uh, at my college and we try to show movies. Licensing fees are just through the roof sometimes when you when you publicize it and open it to the community members rather than using it under educational fair use, at least in the United States, um, in a in a classroom setting. It's 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 so hard to do these kinds of maneuverings with film because of copyright law. But I love the initiative, and I hope it work works out for uh, you all uh, being in different countries. It sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, we don't really have too many problems with um, showing films in an educational setting right. in, in UK schools. That, yeah. that really wasn't an issue. Uh, but I personally found it was wonderful preparation for students who were going on to study psychology at university. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had plenty of material to talk about in an interview situation or for their personal statement, which they have to write to support mm-hmm. their application. Right. Um, and also for my you know, pr- prospective medical students, um, they were able to broaden their knowledge, uh, you know, beyond the actual medical um, field into more psychological um, areas. Um, and apparently, you know, that all went down very well uh, when they when it came to interview. Awesome. Um, so uh, it was a, a really valuable tool, I thought, to uh, to just extend people's knowledge and my my students had a real thirst for extra knowledge um and you know when it was on top of normal lessons mm-hmm. just watching a film was a really enjoyable activity that also taught you something as well so it wasn't the same as having another lesson it was actually a real pleasure um so i think that's where where the film idea really uh, came into its own uh, and as I say, it was hugely popular um, yeah. with my students. I I love that. Um, and the way that you characterized it, the way that you just described it, uh, sometimes I think uh, people don't end up watching movies because it's not a big tentpole action movie or a 
some kind of musical event, you know, some kind of big blockbuster. People don't yeah. end up seeing these more independent movies, especially ones that you know, are are part of the Venice or mm. Venice, Venice Film Festival or Con or something like that. And mm. so these artsy intellectual movies, like the one we're about to discuss, kind of gets lost by the wayside. But if you are don't have a choice, so to speak, I'm not saying that you're forced to watch it in a classroom, but not having a choice. Like, we're so par- paralyzed by choice now as well with all of the streaming services and mm-hmm. just the glut of media. Going into a class and saying, hey, we're going to watch this movie. You don't really have a choice. I think you'll enjoy it. And then making that part of the experience, I think, increases most people's enjoyment of the movie. That's that's what I have found in using film in my classes, that inc- it increases yeah. the enjoyment by taking away the choice, the paralysis by choice, and showing them, hey, I've curated, I've determined this movie meets some quality and content expectations. I think you'll enjoy. I think the average person in this room is going to enjoy it. Yeah, and sometimes the choices of film actually just sprang organically out of what we were covering within the syllabus. Yeah, that's that's Um, awesome too. You know, so for example, on the International Baccalaureate, one of the papers involves um, text analysis and one of the texts that we had one time uh, was on uh, dissociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the very famous Eve White and Eve Black case. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, you know, we ended up watching The Three Faces of Eve, which is a <laughs> black and white film. Uh-huh. It's incredibly well made. Uh, Joanne Woodward won the mm-hmm. Oscar for Best Actress for it many mm-hmm. years ago. Right. Um, and that was a film that the students wouldn't normally um, nope. have considered watching, but nope. the springboard to that was actually looking at the uh, at the research yeah. paper that was uh, covered in the text, That's uh, awesome. and it just sort of happened naturally, which was uh, was fantastic. Okay, so now that we've discussed the film in general, let's pivot to our discussion for today: a dangerous method. So you had uh, I put a call out for uh, potential guests onto Twitter and and you found me through there. Uh, so I appreciate that. And you had a couple a number of suggestions um, on a uh, I think a website that you had that you showed me. And I realized that I hadn't seen a dangerous method. Um, I do recall when it came out about a a little more than a decade ago. But I, I, I did sleep on it because I was like, nah, it's uh, going to be a love story between the three of them. And I don't really feel like that. I think the trailer <laughs> I think the trailer didn't do the actual story justice because I thought it was just going to be a boring love drama with real people from the yeah, past. Yeah. So yeah. I slept on it. So, but I saw that it was on the list and I I was like, you know what? That's one that I want to do. Teaching history of psych right now. I think this is a good idea for me. So I reached back out and I said, how about a dangerous method? And you said, yes. So what brings us here today about dangerous method? Okay. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is really one of my favorite films. And Mm -hmm. and it's mainly because it really enables us to get close um, to the historical events that happened between 
two of the most influential psychologists of all time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I always reflect on the fact that if we hadn't had someone like Freud and Jung mm-hmm. thinking in these really radical new ways, right. um, we would have been stuck forever with, you know, behaviorism and it's really simplistic view of, uh, human psychology. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, you, you can, uh, read up on the history of psychology, but I think actually seeing the events portrayed in film really brings to life just how difficult it was, um, to have these groundbreaking original views accepted by the mainstream. Um, I think you see that really clearly in the film. This is not easy to challenge people's accepted um, view of things, which was fairly basic and fairly simplistic. I don't think you have any notion of the true strengths and depths of the opposition to our work. There's a whole medical establishment, of course, baying to send Freud to the auto da fe. But that's just nothing compared to what happens when our ideas begin to trickle through in whatever garbled form they're relayed to the public. The denials, the frenzy, the incoherent rage. But might that not be caused by your insistence in the exclusively sexual interpretation of the clinical material? Mm. All I'm doing is pointing out what experience indicates to me must be the truth. And I can assure you that in a hundred years' time, our work will still be rejected. Columbus, you know, had no idea what country he discovered. Like him, I'm in the dark. All I know is I've set foot on the shore and the country exists. I think of you more as Galileo and your opponents as those who condemned him while refusing even to put their eye to his telescope. (laughs) In any event, I've simply opened a door. It's for the young men like yourself to walk through it. I'm sure you have many more doors to open for us. I mean, Freud himself actually saw saw himself on a continuum, really, with someone like um, Charles Darwin, whose mm-hmm. views were not readily accepted, were actually attacked and challenged right. by um, the establishment. Um, and Freud seems to be very much in that kind of... Um, that tradition mm-hmm. in that these are radical ways of thinking about human beings. Um, and I think to actually see that struggle, um, you know, and the tensions that it evokes, uh, you know, really impresses upon us how fortunate we were to have these these two geniuses. Um, <laughs> and I think you can also see how the zeitgeist of, of early 20th century Vienna um, yeah. shaped their thinking. And Zurich. Um, yeah. Because sometimes when you read Freudian theory now, you, it can seem very remote and, and you kind of think, really? Is that is that the case? Yeah. Is this valid? But actually, when you see it in the context of the um, place where it was developed, um, and I think this comes through especially with the female characters in the film, mm-hmm. um, I think you really gain a much deeper appreciation of where Freud and Jung are both coming from. So, um, you know, they are similar in many ways. They, you know, they do share lots of, uh, commonalities, um, 
So, for example, I mean, they were both born into very modest family circumstances. So sure. Freud was the son of a, a wool merchant. Uh, Jung was actually the son of a, a very poor pastor. Mm -hmm. in um, Switzerland. Uh, they both studied medicine before moving on to psychiatry or psychology. Um, but they both acknowledged just how important the unconscious mind uh, is uh, in human psychology. Sure. Um, yeah. So they have this, this fundamental um, basis for being drawn together. But um, as we see in the film, there are quite a number of uh, differences and uh, tensions that emerge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it is, you know, it's very striking to see, you know, they're both geniuses in their own right, but actually very different in many ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they are uh, two sides of a coin, uh, in, yeah. my, in my view. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, with with Freud, you have, um, you know, this kind of old established theoretician that he was. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, you know, the up and coming Jung who's making his name. Um, obviously, Freud was Austrian and Jewish and mm -hmm. Jung was Swiss and from a Christian background. Right. Um, you've got Freud is a really faithful family man, actually. And I think we see that most clearly in the film when when Jung visits Freud in Bergasser and uh, he has dinner with the family. And there's this uh, quite amusing shot of, you know, the whole family gathered around the dinner table looking very expectantly well, um, uh, at their visitor. Jung <laughs> young was taking all the food. They're like, absolutely, oh, crap, I'm yeah. not going to get any. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then you contrast scene. that, you know, with the sort of uh, lavish house that uh, – you know, Freud's very affluent wife is able to provide him with. Um, and yeah. of course, uh, Jung is, is a, you know, a, a philanderer. I mean, he's uh, um, kind of, you know, he loves Emma, but it doesn't prevent him forming relationships with Sabina Spielrein and then later on, Tony Wolf. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you you know, you get Freud being quite dogged by ill health. So we see him mm -hmm. collapse at the conference, um, which actually did happen in um, in real life. That is not created for dramatic effect. It did happen. And yeah. Jung did come to his assistance in that. Yep. Um, and then you see Jung, you know, quite uh, healthful and, and energetic. He does live a lot longer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and Freud was, uh, as we know, I mean, he was a, a cocaine addict and he was also, <laughs> a, a, you know, addicted to his cigars, which actually killed mm -hmm. him in the end through yep, oral cancer. cancer. So, yeah. um, you know, but I think we see the juxtaposition most clearly in the scene um, when they're boarding the ship to travel to the States, when mm -hmm. we see how young uh, kind of says, well, I'm going this way into the first class uh, um, area um, mm -hmm. provided for by uh, by his wife. And, yeah. and uh, Freud is obviously not, not able to do that. Um, you also get the juxtaposition of uh, their views on the paranormal, which I think comes through very clearly yeah. um, in their discussions. So, um, 
Freud has no interest in in the occult, whereas um, Jung is is absolutely drawn by um, paranormal phenomena. Uh, and again, in the film, we have that um, incident of where there's the sound from the book case that Jung anticipates and he knows it's going to happen and it does happen mm-hmm. uh, and again that is a real life event that uh, that did happen but the, they didn't speak about it after it had occurred um, but this fits really closely with Jung's views in that um, he was very drawn to the spiritual mm-hmm. um, to the occult, to uh, the idea of symbols and totems, uh, which comes through in his theory um, of the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing that always strikes me in the film is that at first, when I I saw the film for the first time and I heard Freud say um, that they had to defend um, their science and he deliberately calls it a science. Mm-hmm. Don't you see, we have to stay within the most rigorously scientific confines. You all right? Yes, but I can't agree with you. Why should we draw some arbitrary line and rule out whole areas of investigation? Precisely because the world is full of enemies, looking for any way they can to discredit us. And the moment they see us abandon the firm ground of sexual theory to wallow in the black mud of superstition, they will pounce. As far as I'm concerned, even to raise these subjects is professional suicide. You must... I knew that was going to happen. What? I felt something like that was going to happen. I had a kind of burning in my stomach. What are you talking about? It's the heating. The wood in the bookcase just cracked, that's all. No, it's what's known as a catalytic exteriorization phenomenon. A what? A catalytic exteriorization phenomenon. Don't be ridiculous. My diaphragm started to glow red hot. (laughs) And another thing. It's going to happen again. What? In a minute, it's going to happen again. My dear young friend, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. You must promise. You see? That's just, you really can't be serious. So many mysteries, so much further to go. Please, we can't be too careful. We can't afford to wander into these speculative areas. Telepathy, singing bookcases, fairies at the bottom of the garden. It won't do. Um, And when I've taught, um, you know, the paradigms in psychology, um, I've kind of, kind of contrasted behaviorism, which, you know, is based on inductive method and being able to observe and measure things from the outside and being a very scientific approach, contrasted that with the psychodynamic paradigm, um, which seems to be anything but scientific. So, you know, you cannot see the unconscious mind. You cannot see the id ego or superego. We just have to, you know, believe that they exist. Um, So, um, but the more I've read up on this, um, I think the script writers did an excellent job in that Freud was apparently under attack by the... um, uh, the Nazis at the time in Austria, uh, who dismissed his uh, work as pseudoscience. 
Um, so yeah. I think his use of the word science is the attempt to to have his work taken seriously and not have it derided um, in the way that it was um, because he was he was Jewish. Right. Um, so I think you know at first I um, I kind of. Uh, you know, prickled a little bit when I heard that, thinking, oh, gosh, what are these directors doing? Do they not understand the <laughs> the paradigm? But actually, I see it for the time at which it was. Um, oh, yeah. It was it was done. It, it needed to be said. It yeah. needed to be presented as science. And Freud uh, has mentioned many times that that's what he thought he was doing with his what what he was doing with psychoanalysis at the time that it was scientific and uh, it was yeah. all based in medicine and they were were going to unlock the various issues that of course women mostly women were having and uh, yeah he he but he was also off his rocker i i will uh, st state at the top here that i am no <laughs> fan of of neither Freud nor Jung and um, right okay so <laughs> it's allowed <laughs> yes um, because uh, I and and all all do deference to their contributions to psychology they've made some great contributions to psychology but they also did considerable damage to psychology that still is um, being fixed. At, at now and so some of it is just wild and out there um i've been on the record for um disliking the myers-briggs type indicator now that's not necessarily jung's fault but he did meet with Catherine briggs and isabel briggs myers yeah uh, mm -hmm. and and essentially signed off on what they were doing he had he had some disagreements about how they were using his theory, but he still just was like, all right, that's fine. It's whatever. I mean, he was toward the end of his life at this point. Uh, so I don't think yeah. he had much fight left in him. But the MBTI does continue to do, to do damage to psychology as a science, as mm. represented to other uh, groups, other lay groups that don't necessarily know what personality theory is, but yeah. specifically yeah. back to the the movie here because I, I kind of want to dive into the portrayal of psychoanalysis. This being essentially a psychoanalysis themed movie with the concepts and the characters representing a little bit of the broad idea that Freud had created with the id, ego, and superego, as you were saying. So let's yeah. talk about how psychoanalysis was portrayed in this movie um, so the audience member here can get a sense of what they're in for when viewing this through a psychological, historical, or historical psychological lens. What are some sure. of the aspects yeah. of psychoanalysis that you spotted? Well, I think it, it helps if you understand a few basic principles before you actually watch um, the film. So yeah, that's a good um, idea. if. 
Yeah. So if you just have a basic concept of uh, the id as being all your unconscious desires and everything that appeals to your basic instincts, it kind of wants pleasure and it wants it now. It's that kind of a drive, which I think we can all feel within us. I'm I'm sure we're all uh, able to sense that in in our personalities. Um, And then that's sort of counterbalanced by your superego, which is your sense of right and wrong, your Mm -hmm. moral conscious it's the the thing that holds you back from just indulging all the appetites that, that you have um, and then in the middle we have poor old ego who who tries to uh, <laughs> keep a, a, some kind of balance between these two very um basic forces kind of pulling us one way and pulling us the other way. Um, and I think you can see this um, in the actual characters in in the film. So mm-hmm. um, if we think about uh, Jung's wife, Emma, um, so I think she's played um, exceptionally well by um, Sarah Gaydon in the film. She is... Um, almost a symbol of the superego. So yeah. she is the the perfect wife. She's the mother of Young's um, numerous children. Mm-hmm. Um, she lives in this perfect home. She is able to finance the whole of his research with her. I know, it's um, wild. Yeah, all his uh, uh, all his work is financed by her, um, and then we have Sabina Spielrein, um, who is the symbol of the the id, really, in that she basically. Um, wants to have a relationship with Jung and is is determined to get it. Mm -hmm. Um, She's not going to be taking no for an answer. And just to cut in there for one second, um, the film starts abruptly with Sabina being sent to the hospital that... It does, uh, yeah. uh, that, ...that Jung is working at as a young doctor. And he wants to attempt the talking cure, which is what it's referred to in the movie, um, which is just honestly talk therapy, which we call psychotherapy these days. Um, And but it was new. And that's what a dangerous method uh, in the stage play. It's uh, a most dangerous method was the name of the book. Excuse me. The talking Mm -hmm. cure was the name of the play. Sabina is going to this hospital because she is suffering from fits of hysteria. Good morning. Dr. Jung, I admitted you yesterday. I'm not, I'm not mad, you know. Let me explain what I have in mind. I propose that we meet here most days to talk for an hour or two. Talk? Yes, just talk. See if we can identify what's troubling you. So as to distract you as little as possible, I'm going to sit there. Behind you. I'm going to ask you to try not to turn around and look at me under any circumstances. Have you any idea what may have brought on these attacks you suffer from? Humiliation and... Any, any kind of 
hurt just yet. It makes me feel nauseated. I start pouring with sweat, cold sweat. My, 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 my father lost his, his temper all the time. He was always, he was always angry with me. When you stopped talking just now, did a thought come into your head? I don't know. Uh, or an image, perhaps. Was it an image? Yes. Yes. What was the image? It was, it was a, a hand. My, 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 my father's hand. Why do you think you saw that? Whenever he went after, whenever he, whenever he hit us, we afterwards we had to, we had to kiss his hand. What thought is that case I was writing up last week? I happened to pick the code name, Sabina. And we later learn that the hysteria and the tics uh, that she shows at the beginning here are are all based in what the uh, excuse me what the Freudian theory of psychoanalysis would expect. She was abused by her father when she was younger. That's what we learn. I don't think that secret is necessarily uh, a spoiler. So you learn it very early into the movie. Yeah, you do. Um, you do. And yeah. and so I think we pivot away from her being a patient very quickly. She gets. She tells her deepest darkest secret. Uh, Jung and Freudian theory would suggest that that's because she was beaten by and she has attributed the sexual desires to that thing. You'll you could you can still hear some very prominent people talk that way these days. I don't think that it's um, as clean as that. But in the case of the movie, that's how they explain it. So that's why I think Sabina is set up as the id. Um, and then in the next part, I think you'll you'll mention that Jung is the ego, correct? Absolutely, yeah, because he is sort of trying to balance his life between these two driving forces. Mm -hmm. So he's uh, he's got kind of lust and passion on one side uh, with Zabina, and then responsibility and and his duty as a father and the loving husband yeah. um, on the other. So I think that is uh, this this whole sort of triangular relationship perfectly. Um, conveys this tension within the, the psychoanalytic uh, theory itself. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, the way Zabina um, is portrayed in the film is incredibly accurate to what we what we know of her, mm -hmm. actually. So she did have um, a record, a track record of becoming infatuated with people. <laughs> um, she was incredibly intelligent and, um, but, you know, had fantasies about having a child with various people who mm -hmm. she was infatuated with, which she does with uh, with Young. Mm -hmm. and, and stated as such in the movie as well. Yeah. 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 The one thing um, that I would take issue with the filmmakers on is that um, 
Zabina's diaries um, kind of make us think that they she may not have had a full sexual relationship with Jung in that she describes their relationship in her diary as poetry. Mm. Um, Interesting. And, you know, I we wonder, you know, it's a kind of, well, it's something that we will never know, isn't it? But um, it's not 100% certain um, from a historical point of view um, that they did have a, a sexual relationship on that level. They certainly did have you know, this fierce attraction and um, intimacy with each other. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, she yeah. describes it as poetry and that she wants more of the poetry is how she um, describes it. Yeah. Um, and also I think in the portrayal of Emma Jung, like we're describing her as the um, superego figure uh, and as this sort of perfect wife who, um, you know, sort of has this beautiful house and is completely devoted to her, um, to her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in real life, she was not quite as, as weak as I think the film portrays her. So um, she took an active interest in Jung's work um, mm-hmm. and yeah. she um, actually discussed with Freud um, the latent tensions in his relationship with her husband that she was picking up on. So she was an incredibly perceptive woman Um you know, certainly not the kind of, you know, weak, subservient uh, wife that I think the, the film um, tends to portray to, to put, uh, portray um, Emma as. And I, I just want to add to that um, because uh, one aspect of psychoanalysis that I really uh, appreciate or just or just psychological um, measurement in general was the scene where Emma is assisting Carl with his um, free word association, free association task, which is uh a big part of it. Right. And so she has her hands. I'm just going to describe this to you, listener, because I think it's a really cool contraption. Um, And Sabina helps uh, Jung with uh, the recording of it while he is administering it. So Emma has her hands on some copper plates, which are attached to um, the uh, a um, some kind of capacitor or something like that, some kind of current um, collector. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And uh, he puts weights on her hands. And so that's going to be measuring the galvanic skin response. So it's a circuit, right, of of, um, copper plates. And so the more the uh, the more that there's sweat, the more electrolytes there are, the more uh, current is going to pass through to um, this drum that has a, a light that moves back and forth um, mm-hmm. or, or a light is, shine, is shown on a mirror excuse me light is shown on a mirror so this mirror is moving back and forth in in relation to the current that's traveling through uh, the circuit and it moves the uh, mirror back and forth and a light is shown on this mirror at an angle and this uh, the light then reflect it, f- reflects down onto this like clear ruler and it's a slit it's really cool it's a slit and then another person essentially moves a counterweight back and forth trying to match where this light is and then that counterweight moves a needle and scratches a black par- parchment paper, and that gives you the voltage change 
uh, in the person's hands. And I think it's an amazing contraption. It is. I mean, I think I think it, this film really shows you just how psychology used to be in its infancy. You know, when you yeah. think of the sophisticated techniques that we're used to these days, um, you know, rewind um, a hundred years, and uh, you know, this it's, is what it's wild. Uh, what psychology was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Computers, computers do everything that that like four piece. Uh, or five piece uh, contraption. Oh did. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it just shows how far we've come, really, doesn't it? It doesn't. And in um, and like you said, about a, about a hundred years, hundred and ten years, or something like that. Hundred and ten years. We're talking. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, the other character that we've not mentioned so far, but he is really important to how psychoanalytic theory is portrayed in the. Um, in the movie mm -hmm. is Otto Gross. Mm -hmm. Now, um, he is a kind of maverick, mm -hmm. um, psychoanalyst. <laughs> um, I think that's the best way to describe him. I mean, he's basically an anarchist. Um, he, yes, I, I a hundred percent agree. And yeah. the interesting thing about, uh, Gross in the movie is that he is the one who does cocaine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, but basically, I think he, he is portrayed as having a, this kind of fragility. So, I mean, he is he's basically a, a hedonist. He lives for pleasure. He believes that you should indulge all your appetites mm -hmm. fully and without any guilt. Um, and he is the kind of um, catalyst to uh, Jung going into his relationship with um, Sabina Spielrein, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, full tilt. Well, you know, once he's yeah. uh, kind of listened to uh, Otto Gross's uh, pronouncements on uh, the importance of pleasure. Um, mm. But um, I think he also has this, I don't, he is a maverick, but he... I don't know. He has a, for me, he has a kind of almost genius quality about him as well. He's like the sort of flawed genius. So um, he is, you know, an addict. To, you know, I think, you know, it could be sort of latent um, schizophrenic tendencies that he shows in the in the film. Mm. Um, he's definitely got anarchist tendencies. Very, very id tendencies, you know. Yeah, he's fragile, but he has that kind of, you know, the the genius quality about him. So I think he is a is an intriguing character. But the way he talks about indulging your appetites without any guilt or um, you know uh, reticence about it, um, he is the embodiment of id. Um, so basically, just you know, enjoy your freedom um, from society's norms. Um, do whatever you want, and what gives you pleasure is his philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, we have sort of Freud is the superego in this tripartite uh, mm -hmm. relationship. So um, he is very firmly against. Um, the relationship between the um, the psychoanalyst and the patient becoming right. overly um, cozy, shall we say? Um, so he's very much for having a rigid, unwavering theoretical model, and having a very 
clear boundary in relationships between the um, psychoanalyst and the client. Um, and this is where, you know, part of the tension with with Jung and his relationship with Zabina starts to founder because, you know, Freud says he can't think about Jung in the same way once he, um, you know, receives a letter from Zabina uh, describing um, her relationship with Jung. Right. Um, but in this um, this sort of triangle, we have Otto Gross as the id, we have Freud as the superego, um, and then Jung is the kind of ego trying to satisfy the id's desires of kind of helping clients um, from their miseries, mm-hmm. um, but then also acknowledging, you know, the theoretical model that Freud has developed and his father figure status um, within the the psychoanalytic movement. So um, I think this is is the sort of richness of the film. It gives you so much to think about that you can can see it on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's symbolic, but it's also a really heartfelt portrayal of the um you know the tensions and the feelings and heightened emotions that were were obviously um experienced by the characters at the time yeah. so i that's that's why i why i particularly enjoy enjoy this um, as a historical film but it also you know can be seen in this symbolic way as well i agree and i think the final piece of psychoanalysis that is embedded throughout this uh, and then we'll take a quick break is the uh, incredible amounts of dream interpretation that happen throughout the movie there is so much dream yes, interpretation absolutely yeah there is yeah and, um, and you it, it is perhaps the um most common uh, behind you know discussions of relationships in this movie is the the common conversation that is happening within the dialogue. I dreamed. I dreamed about a horse being hoisted by cables to a considerable height. Suddenly, a cable breaks and the horse is dashed to the ground, but it's not hurt. It leaps up and gallops away, impeded only by a heavy log which it's obliged to drag along the ground. Then a rider on a small horse appears in front of it so that it's forced to slow down. And a carriage appears in front of the small horse so that our horse is compelled to slow down even more. I imagine the horse is yourself. Yes. Your ambition has been frustrated in some way. The rider slowing me down. Yes. I think this may refer to my wife's first pregnancy. I had to give up an opportunity to go to America because of it. The carriage in front perhaps alludes to an apprehension that our two daughters and other children, perhaps still to come, will impede my progress even more. As a father of six, I can vouch for that. Not to mention the inevitable financial difficulties. No. Fortunately, my wife is extremely wealthy. Oh. Yes. That is fortunate. This log. Yes. 
I think perhaps you should entertain the possibility that it represents the penis. Yes. In which case, what may be at issue is that a certain sexual constraint has been brought about by a fear of a succession of endless pregnancies. I'm bound to say that if one of my patients had brought me this dream, I might have said that the number of restraining elements surrounding this unfortunate horse could perhaps point to the determined suppression of some unruly sexual desire. And it's a great way to move dialogue along in this kind of movie because it's just two people talking to each other on the screen and it's it's very static and and that's all of your, that's all you're looking at but it's a very good way to to move a conversation along and have these really big intellectual uh conversations that are embedded in something that everyone does and everyone can sort of get behind that and that, that that's the idea of, of dreams and of course it is a staple of freudian theory and, and freudian thinking that your dreams represent some kind of subconscious issue that you're dealing with but instead of being direct because the subconscious is uh obtuse shall we say obfuscated that yeah. mm-hmm. that yep. <laughs> it has to come in the form of symbols and you have to interpret those symbols because we are not um as as lay individuals not trained or ready to decipher and so we need the the help of, of a guide and a very interesting conversations that occur my favorite one probably has to be where uh jung is talking to freud about having a large log in one of his dreams and freud just interjects at one point and says you know the log could represent a penis and it's it's the one (laughs) thing that is not danced around in the movie, right? Because a lot of a lot of the discussion of psychoanalysis in the movie is is dancing around how much sex is discussed within the theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, I think you know, at one point they actually make fun of of Freud. Yes, um, they do. I don't, I, I don't know if you remember this scene, but. Um, you know, somebody says, you know, how come it's all about sex with Freud? And then, you know, Jung kind of says uh, very wryly, well, um, I think it's because he doesn't get any, you know, yes. and everybody finds, you know, it's a sort of, <laughs> um, you know, little wry dig at uh, at Freud. But I think this particular, I think this particular um, line that Freud gives, that, that Freud throws is, the screenplay writer going, yes, penises uh, are a <laughs> are a staple of this, right? It's all about penis envy and all yeah. of that. So everything's yeah. a penis. And yeah. and and I, I again the the joke the derision that is directed at Jung or excuse me at 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 Freud at, at the other scene that you just referenced. I think this mm. particular one is like, yes, all right. It's a log connected to a penis and let's get it over with. (laughs) And so I I thought it was I thought it was really fun to uh, explore dreams in that way. There is a lot of it. Again, it is moving the conversation, uh, the conversations along, moving the dialogue along, moving the 
tension along as well as Jung wants to bring in more supernatural explanations and Freud is like, just stick with what I've developed already. And, and, and and that, and that tension growing because as the dreams get weirder and weirder or more symbolic and more symbolic, you see them start to separate on how to best interpret the dreams as the main way to reach the subconscious. So I want to take a quick break um, and we will come back to asking some additional questions about this movie. So stick around with me and Dr. Sheila Thomas. Are you a big fan of the Cinema Psych podcast, a connoisseur of the compelling stories and intriguing insights that we have on this show? Well, show your love in style with our premium podcast merchandise. Yeah, that's right. I've updated the podcast store from ultra comfy hoodies, perfect for cozy podcast binges to sleek coffee mugs that add a dash of personality to your morning routine our merchandise store has it all i've added so many new products and it's designed to withstand countless listening marathons there are a lot of episodes i think you'll love them but wait there is more every week there is a new Promotion, turning up the volume on value. So keep an eye out for our exciting special promotions. Every other week, 15% off in between. Sometimes there's a special 25% off day. And then sometimes there's free shipping. It's the perfect way to score your Cinema Psych podcast merch for less. I'm excited to have expanded the merchandise offerings, but I'm really excited to say that new designs are coming up. And you can put these designs on all of the merchandise. So keep an eye out for new arrivals in the design section. So don't just listen, wear it, flaunt it, live it. Visit our merchandise store at cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com slash store to shop your love for the Cinema Psych Podcast today. Remember, every purchase goes directly to supporting this show. And of course, thanks for listening to this show. I love doing it. Now let's get back into it. And we are back with Dr. Sheila Thomas discussing a dangerous method, a fictionalized take on the relationship not only between Freud and Jung. You psychology folks out there should know those names just by their last ones. Uh, and a woman named Sabina Spierrein who gets in their in the middle of them, in their way, we'll see. Uh, I've got a couple more questions uh, for uh, Sheila here. 
And we're going to start with this question that um, she came up with. And I think it's a great one to get her thoughts on, which is what can we learn about the history of psychology from this film? I think it's a uh, an important question to ask because this is a great film to use in a class like history and systems or just history of psychology. So, um, Sheila, what are your thoughts on this question? Well, I think um, from the very first scene, I think we're quite um, horrified, really, by how Sabina Spielrein, who is um, clearly suffering, you know, a very high level of emotional distress, is oh, wow. restrained. Um, we see the um, the hospital building of the uh, Burg Holtzli sort of looming at the top of a, of a hill in a, a really sort of unfriendly, threatening manner. Uh, when she's admitted, we have these formal nurses in uniform. Um, the treatment involves things like the immersion in cold water baths. Uh, you know, we have moved so far from this model of um, treatment um, that I think it's actually very um, salutary for us to um, to look back and think, mm. gosh, that is what treatment used to be. Absolutely. Just over a century ago. Look how far we have come um, from that. This is why psychology is so important. Yeah. Um, and research is so important. Um, I also think if we look at the, um, the female characters in, um, the film, I think you can see how psychology was completely male dominated. Oh yeah. Um, so at the conference, if you remember that scene, they're all basically middle-class, uh, middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. um, Sabina Spielrein is the only woman in a man's world. Um, and, you know, she was a hugely, hugely accomplished woman. Yes. But um, she yes. is surrounded by uh, by men in this, this um, completely male-dominated um, discipline. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... Most importantly, what, what this film um, shows us is within the history of psychology, I think we really need to give full credit to um, Freud for breaking the mold. Um, so, um, you know, we see just, you know, how intense the struggle was for him to get his ideas accepted. Um, you know, if you read his, his various biographies, he would dearly love to have been awarded the Nobel prize, which he never was. Um, in medicine? But, well, in medicine or psychology, but, um, he was friends with Einstein who of course famously was, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he never had that accolade. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, he had to fight against so many attacks from other intellectuals. Um, you know, he was under attack politically as well, you know, in the very turbulent uh, time in which he was living, you know, all sorts oh, yeah. of uh, 
pressures were on him as a as a, a Jewish um, person living in Vienna, uh, which right. he stubbornly refused to um, to leave. He may have been a giant in psychology, but um, politically, um, he was incredibly naive. He thought that. Uh, you know, sort of the rise of uh, Nazism was some sort of, you know, local dispute that would be resolved very swiftly. Um, so, um, you know, he he really um, had to battle on so many fronts. Um, so I think, you know, we need to really um, acknowledge the... Um, you know the efforts that that had to go into um, um, having uh, psychoanalysis accepted uh, by the mainstream. Um, also, from a historical perspective, you know we were just talking about um, the symbolism of the penis, weren't we? Not so long ago in our podcast. <laughs> um, I think you only need to look at the lives that the female characters live to realize um, that penis envy was actually typically, in, you know, in Freud's case, typically um, conveyed with sexual overtones. Right. But actually you can see how the symbolic meaning of that is that, you know, women in that society were envious of men, but not for the, um, you know, the actual organ itself, but for the <laughs> status, the power, the wealth. Yeah that men clearly um, had. Um, and even, you know, accomplished women like Sabina Spielrein, like Emma Young, um, you know, were trailblazers, you know, trying their best to forge ahead, but mm -hmm. in a very male-dominated um, society. Uh, and if you look at Freud's wife, you know, she was an expert in running the family and the home. Um, but she was very limited in what, what she could do. And that was exactly how, you know, Freud makes no secret of the fact that, you know, he regards women as having uh, weaker superegos than men, you know, mm. because the female cannot uh, fear castration in the electrocomplex in the same way that a boy can in the Oedipus complex. Yeah. So the, the gender bias that is, you know, hugely prevalent in that society, um, I think we need to, to, you know, see it in its historical context, but realize how fortunate we are to have moved on from that way of thinking. So I want to uh, push back a little bit uh, mm -hmm. on your description here. So, uh, and I'm going to use a source that I give my history of psych students to when we talk about Freud. So mm -hmm. there's a, there was a book that came out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, 2017 uh, by Frederick Cruz, excuse me, uh, Freud, The Making of an Illusion. And so I want to um, pull back a little bit here uh, and suggest that um, even though we do have psychoanalysis and, you know, you you, you like that or you don't, it, it, it has some uh, benefits for some disorders out there, not for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so Cruz pushes back on this deifying of this or canonizing 
of this figure in psychology and uh, uses basically his own words against him uh, as far as science is concerned here. And, and I think this is very useful for the question that we have posed here in this show, which is what's the historical significance of this film? And I think using this film and showing Freud as a uh, super ego type figure, right? That That is yeah. mm-hmm. a, a foil for the character of Jung. Um, pushing back on the the actual man himself, I think, is very important here as a counterpoint. So these were the words that he 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 said of himself toward the middle end of his career. He said this, mm. quote, I am actually not at all a man of science, not an observer, not an experimenter, not a thinker. I am by temperament nothing but a conquistador, an adventurer, if you want it translated, with all the curiosity, daring, and tenacity characteristic of a man of this sort. I think that's a, 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 a fairly mm. <laughs> um, a bad analogy to have made, knowing what we already knew at the start of the 20th century, that um, conquist- being conquistadors and all of the nations that eventually gained their own independence in the 1800s from Spain... Um, probably not the best analogy to make. Uh, it's en- essentially saying that he uh, wants to uh, conquer psychology or at least the, the ideas of psychology in my own mind um, and not of the kind of person that he is portrayed in the film. I think it's really critical to draw that separation from a historical perspective. He once uh, told a friend... We do analysis for two reasons, to understand the unconscious and to make a living. We certainly cannot help the patients, end quote. He's he's a bit, Uh (laughs) he he was, and I think a lot of it had to do with being a cocaine addict. I mean, it's entirely possible that he had significant problems with uh, his own mental health and he was using cocaine and he advocated it for it. Like he he would tell patients, have you tried cocaine? Because it helps me. So maybe it'll help you, too. He also did a lot of morphine. Um, so, I mean, it, it's yeah, we could say that psychoanalysis is an interesting idea. It helped bring us about uh, bring about other interesting ideas, but also uh, some of the things that Freud did were not great. He was not a very good human being. Um, I'm I'm happy that he was able to escape Nazism, especially in Austria, because Austria was like, yeah, exactly, Hitler, whatever you say, and you know became a part of of Germany. Um, and so it was a good idea for him to have left. And I'm glad for that because of his Jewish ancestry, but he was not a very good psychologist at all. Right. Can I beg to differ? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right. So I think you need to give him real credit for having these completely original ideas that no one else had had before. Oh, absolutely. I I I, I agree with that statement. Yeah. 
and I think I mentioned earlier that he actually saw himself as being on a sort of continuum with Darwin. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> on uh, someone... And that was the, probably the cocaine. It, well, perhaps <laughs> it was. Perhaps it was. Um, but I think this is, you know, the whole relationship with, with Jung um, is kind of Freud seeing Jung as being his heir apparent. Yeah, You know, exactly. very much at the beginning of the relationship. Mm-hmm. He's immensely proud of um, his work, wants it to be taken seriously. Um, and um, especially as well, I mean, in, in his own daughter, Anna, I mean, the the way oh, that stuff. the father-daughter relationship <laughs> mm-hmm. worked was um, exceptionally close. I mean, I can kind of see where he was coming from with the... Uh, the kind of Oedipus and Electra complexes with his some of his own family relationships, <laughs> but um, and and actually with his own mother, apparently his own mother called him, you know, mein goldener Ziggy. He was the cherished firstborn son mm-hmm. um, and and cosseted by his own mother. So um, you know, we can see you know where some of these um, theories have their roots yeah, um absolutely but i i do i do think that um his originality you know his trailblazing um theories okay we know they have their flaws we know that we cannot prove any of it scientifically but you know I can't prove it's right. Equally, I cannot prove that it's wrong. You either accept it as it stands or you don't. Um, but I think that the fundamental principles that Freud introduced, okay, you know, he has this enormous emphasis on um, sexuality. So if you think about the libido, so Freud sees this as definitely sexual uh, drive, whereas Jung sees it more as a, as a kind of life force, you mm-hmm. know, and and things like the unconscious mind, you know, Freud's original idea, it's a unitary unconscious mind, Jung wants to take it further and subdivide it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you have to give Freud credit for having had the originality um, that caused these ideas to be um, brought forward. Um, and, you know, this is how how progress works, isn't it? You know, we take other people's work, we revisit it, right. we modify it, yep. we do further research, and mm-hmm. this is how we move forward. Um, mm-hmm. But the huge leap forward that he makes from, you know, basic behaviorism into something that we kind of recognize as psychology today, um, you know, we wouldn't have had, you know, the humanistics or, um, you know, cognitive approaches. Right. Those wouldn't really exist without Freud opening the door. Yes. To those paradigms. So, I mean, he, you know, all the neo-Freudians, I mean, we've been talking about his uh, fallout with Jung. It wasn't just Jung that he fell out with. He seemed to have a track record of falling out with lots of the (laughs) neo-Freudians on various, um, you know, technicalities or points of practice, you know. Yeah. Um, This was not uncharacteristic for him to fall out with his... uh, um, his fellow theoreticians, but um, I do think he is a sort of gateway figure 
um, and he opened the door for us to be able to see um, other possibilities. Um, so personally, you know, I know he's very, very easy to criticize. You know, we <laughs> can um, can really knock him down. I also think we need to remember the positive side, you know, that sure. actually we wouldn't have any of the other later um, paradigms without Freud opening that very important door um, for us, um, you know, over a hundred years ago now, you know, it's, yeah. um, we've, we've come a long way really since, uh, these ideas were first, um, put forward. Yeah, I agree. So very briefly here, who do you think would enjoy watching this film just in general? So in general, I mean, I think anybody uh, with an interest in in psychology, but also in just, um, you know, culture generally, uh, this is powerful social history um, that I think anybody would enjoy, actually. So you don't have to agree with the psychoanalytic theories in order to appreciate right. um, where Freud's ideas are, are coming from. So, or uh, where, where Jung got his ideas exactly you know? yeah so yeah so you can see how freud lays the foundations that jung then builds upon um so i think um anybody who's interested in popular culture obviously i mean my um ib and my a level students absolutely adored this film mm-hmm. um they thought it was incredibly powerful um and it brought to life the psychodynamic paradigm for them. Before we watched the film, it was just kind of very theoretical. This really brought it to life for them. I agree. Um, Absolutely. And um, also, I mean, talking about popular culture, um, you know, did you know that uh, David Bowie, for example, was heavily influenced by Jung? Um, So especially the animus, anima, archetype yes uh-huh. so the male in the female the female in the male yeah. uh, and the persona archetype was uh, you know very uh, a favorite of his he actually name checks jung in uh, aladdin sane so listen out when you when you're next um, listening to the album um jung also appears on the cover of uh, sergeant pepper Oh, yes. Uh, so as if, one if of you the know the faces. famous album, mm-hmm. the Beatles, very famous film cover, he is one of the faces there. Excellent. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Freud uh, as sort of, you know, his concepts have just passed into uh, mainstream popular culture, haven't they? Yeah, so, I mean, we talk right. about Oedipus and electrocomplexes, you know, Freudian we talk about slips. dream interpretations, yep. Freudian slips, you know. Um, so these two, um, you know, we, you know, as, as I called them right at the beginning, these two giants of psychology, um, I think everybody should um, get something from this film and, and gain that, you know, gain the understanding of um, seeing them in their in their historical context, and uh, I personally think that the film has um, paid a tremendous tribute to their um, to their endeavours. You know, it was not not an easy ride for either of them, <laughs> um, and the film does stick remarkably closely to the um, yeah. historical and diary evidence which we have. Um, in enormous detail. Yeah, Cronenberg says that uh, um, 
everything that happens in the movie in a public setting uh, is more or less historically accurate. And then the things yeah. that happen in the privacy of rooms is speculative. And that's yeah. and yeah. that's, I think, a great way to approach a character driven stage play esque uh, nonfiction basis for for a story. I mean, it, again, it's not going to appeal to everyone. Uh, it's an it's an indie art house film uh, by David Cronenberg, which is quite <laughs> different from his body horror stuff. But you know, it it, it offers. I, I and and this is my evaluation to add to yours. Of I think it it's appropriate for pretty much all audiences because it's only ninety minutes uh, and only a little bit longer with credits. So it's like it's it's really snappy. You don't see too many dramas that are only 90 minutes and no. scenes move very quickly. A lot of really heavy intellectual brainy topics that if you blink, you might miss uh, a word or two that makes a whole lot more sense. It's still very uh, it, it. The dialogue captures you. For each of these small little vignettes, I think is very helpful, snappy, as I said, and you don't even realize that it's 90 minutes later and you're like, holy crap. And then there are these <laughs> naughty scenes with partial nudity in them where it's just like um, where it gets your heart rate going a little bit more and you're like, oh, my attention shifted. OK, great. Now I can do another brainy scene between Jung and Freud again. So. I think it's a really I think it's a really uh, useful film as far as you said at the beginning of our conversation, Sheila, where you said, you know, it's a very important piece of art that can help and the images themselves can help with student understanding and things like that. And it doesn't bore you to death. It does not bore you to death. And I think that's really important in this kind of in, in this setting of using films in in, in one's pedagogy. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's also just beautifully shot. Oh, yeah. You know, the some of the scenes great. are yeah. just wonderful just to look at the artistry of the shot. So for example, you know, in Jung's boat, when the boat is approaching the, the jetty, um, you know, the music works so well with it. Um, you get some fantastic shots of Vienna. Um, it's just a beautiful, um, film, um, that offers you so much on so many levels. Um, you know, so I think it's, it is for the specialist um, student. They can, you know, really get to grips with the sort of theory that they've covered. But it is also for um, a more general audience, you know, and it's um, it's part of part of our heritage, really, that uh, that we should be should be aware of and how it still influences popular culture today. Um, that's what I think uh, you can really get from this. I want to thank Dr. Sheila Thomas for joining me to discuss a dangerous method. Before we say goodbye, Sheila, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Where can folks find more about your work? This is for you to reach out there. What do you got? <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute delight to discuss the film with you, Alex. Um, thank you so much for, for inviting me onto the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. If anybody would like to look me up on LinkedIn, you can see my profile there. Um as I say, I, I am a researcher and teacher, and um, I've written a, a book of practice questions for uh, research methods um, at A-level, which um, you can get on Amazon, you can get on troubadour.co.uk. Um, and I do a lot of online tutoring. So I live in quite a, um, a small village in Portugal, but it is remarkable wow. what technology makes possible. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, if you would like to um, contact me, uh, my email is Sheila Thomas, all one word, lowercase, 7905 at AOL.com. Excellent. Um, and I do get excellent results, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you got to put the plug in for, you know, the outcomes. Absolutely. Well, yep. Yep. thank you. Perfect. I will link your LinkedIn and I will link your email address uh, in the show notes. Thanks again, Sheila, for joining uh, me to talk the movie. Great. Well, I hope hope uh, the audience have found it interesting and enjoyable. I think so. That's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one. Thanks for listening.